Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. This is the interview of the day. Roger McNamee, co-founder of Elevation Partners, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. We talk a lot about Facebook on this radio station, but maybe we don't talk enough about the impact that Facebook has on our daily lives, on privacy, on political uh, elections in this country. But that's going to change right now. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, Facebook taken to the cleaners by the public about the role that it played knowingly or unknowingly in the 2016 election in terms of allowing discourse to go in different directions. Have they learned their lesson as we gear up for the 2020 election? Right. We, we want them to have learned that democracy is too important to be damaged by the interests of any corporation. The one they've actually learned is that Facebook is global, that in many ways it's like a nation state. And as a result, it has the power to ignore the needs of countries that it operates in. I mean, keep in mind, this is a company that has ignored subpoenas from the parliaments of the United Kingdom and Canada, which are two of its largest and most profitable markets. And so I think what's going on right now is that I think Mark has concluded that Facebook's future will be best assured by maintenance of the status quo, so to say, the re-election of President Trump. And, you know, without being too obvious about it, I think they're making changes that at the margin are immensely valuable to the Trump campaign relative to other campaigns, specifically the decision to reverse the policy on fact-checking campaign ads. And there's an analogous one that they've done for Mayor Bloomberg, where they've chosen not to fact check things done by influencers on Instagram and YouTube that are paid for by campaigns. And those are choices that in a normal democracy you wouldn't make. But at this moment in time in this particular country, those are decisions Facebook has made with at best mild pushback. Well, we had we did get some pushback from George Soros, the billionaire uh, philanthropist mm-hmm. and uh, an investor, and he wrote a note in the Financial Times saying that uh, Zuckerberg and, and, and Sheryl Sandberg should be removed from their posts and saying they should not accept political advertising. Is there any other push that perhaps has a little more oomph than an op-ed in the Financial Times from George Soros uh, actually to get them to do that? My hypothesis is that Mr. Soros was speaking mostly to the European Union, where I think his message has a welcome audience. You know, I think he he is Mm -hmm. enormously respected around the world, but particularly in Europe. The the challenge that we face here, I think, simply put, is there are no countervailing sorry countervailing forces in our democracy. You know, we were designed to have three elements of government that push back on each other. We would have press that push back on all elements of government. You would have business and religion that push back on each other. And now, the things that caused those to be in opposition to each other have broken down. And so. You know, the Trump administration has put together an alliance with business and a portion of the of the religious world that has allowed it to withstand any pushback from 
journalists and has allowed it to defy 240 years of convention in operating the government. And that, I think we cannot overstate the profound impact that Google and Facebook have had in enabling that. We should note that Michael Bloomberg is the founder and principal uh, shareholder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Radio. Um, Roger, you know, with all your experience in Silicon Valley, uh, Silver Lake uh, Partners, Elevation Partners, we've you know, during all that time, the U.S. has taken a very light touch to yeah. regulating Silicon Valley and technology versus, say, the European Union going all the way back to Microsoft and things like that. Do you sense that that is fundamentally changing at all? We've had some CEOs, including, including Mark Zuckerberg, brought in front of Congress. That's kind of new. That feels new. Do you think things are changing? I believe that they have to change. I think the tech industry is today where the chemicals industry was in 1960, where the medicine industry was in 1900, or where the building trades were after the Great Chicago Fire, where these things are so strategic to the economy that you have to find a way to have them operate without doing great harm. And, you know, the chemicals industry used to pour mercury into fresh water, and that had <laughs> massive yeah. consequences for public health as well as for the environment. And we said, look, we're not going to allow that anymore. We're not going to allow you to just spew smoke into the atmosphere. And, you know, you remember what New York City was like, yep. you know, in the 70s and early 80s when you couldn't see anything because of all the smog. And tech is now in that place, and we have to have some kind of regulation. And in my mind, we've tried self-regulation. That's failed miserably. And yeah. we really need to impose it from the outside. And it has to start, frankly, from the people who use the products, who have to recognize that this, there's a lot of harm being done to our children. There's a lot of harm being done to our family and friends, right? We can't have Thanksgiving dinner without getting into political fights. And these things are not an accident. They're part of the business model. Roger, unfortunately, we only have about a minute left, but I do want to ask you, you are an early investor yeah. and a mentor uh, to Mark Zuckerberg. Do you regret investing in it? I wish that I had been more successful at persuading Mark in 2016 that there was a structural problem at Facebook. Did you know there was? In, I first observed it at the beginning of 2016. I wish I'd seen it sooner, but I had stopped being active there in 2009. And Candidly, I was just enjoying the success of the company because in the early days, it just felt like this was one of the really great new companies. And Mark's value system in those days had no negative manifestations that you could see, at least that I saw. And But when I started to see the problems in 2016, I then reached out to him in October and said, Mark, there is something structurally wrong with the business model, the algorithms, and the culture that's allowing bad people to hurt innocent people. I gave him some examples from civil rights, and then I really focused on both what I saw in the Democratic primary with disinformation, but especially Brexit, where you could see that disinformation had almost certainly affected the outcome. And I spent three months pleading with them, beginning before the election and then continuing for months afterwards. As their friend, just saying, look, you gotta treat this like Johnson and Johnson treated the Tylenol poisoning. You gotta come to the defense of the people who use the product. This is America. And he didn't listen. Well, apparently not. <laughs> Roger McNamee, thank you so much for being with us. Tremendous speaking with you. Roger McNamee is co-founder of Elevation Partners, based in Menlo Park, but joining us here in our interactive broker's studios, an early mentor, an investor uh, in Facebook, really interesting insight into the current election cycle and the possibility that Facebook will play a similar role 
yes. cutting into it in terms and starting of starting to get more. It's, in addition to Roger, starting to get more uh, attention, I think, from a yeah. lot of different walks of life. Well, as a Democratic race heats up for the White House, one theme that is emerging is taxation and taxation of the rich. To get a sense of kind of where the different candidates stand, we welcome Laura Davison. She's a congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us in the Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Uh, Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Give us, if you would, kind of a summary of where some of the candidates are in terms of uh, taxation going forward. Yeah, so there's really quite a range. They're all uh, promoting sort of the same ideas, higher taxes on the wealthy, higher taxes um, on corporations. But really, the difference is the magnitude of how much they want to raise those levies. So kind of at the bottom level, you have um, Amy Klobuchar, Mike Bloomberg, Joe Biden. Uh, they're proposing, you know, some some modest increases to, to the corporate tax rate and um, as well as some levies that would hit higher earners, but they haven't gone as far as like a wealth tax, for example. On the other end, you have um, Sanders, uh, short, shortly followed by Warren and then Buttigieg, uh, kind of lagging there and in third place of sort of the, the biggest tax increases you'd see. Uh, what they're proposing is really sort of uh, is massive compared to other presidential tax plans we've seen in years past. They're looking at tens of trillions of dollars, you know, just for comparison. And Hillary Clinton in 2016 proposed a, you know, about a one and a half trillion dollar tax plan. So there's big differences in um, sort of what the more moderate lane is doing and, and what the progressive lane is, is proposing. Laura, let's drill into two particular proposals because there are two individuals on that stage tonight that are going to be really front and center. And that is Bernie Sanders, because he is emerging as the bona fide front runner of this race, and Michael Bloomberg, majority owner and founder of Bloomberg LP, which owns this radio station and, and the news segment. Uh, this is going to be the first debate that he is going to participate in, and so a lot of eyes on him, and he's representing the more moderate branch of the Democratic Party. Can you give us a sense on, a, on sort of the scale uh, and what their proposals actually are? Yeah, so just looking at, at corporate taxes, for example, there's some new numbers out on that. So that's a kind of a, a small piece to look at. Uh, Bernie Sanders, for example, is, is looking at proposing uh, higher corporate taxes of about almost $4 trillion over a decade. So he's looking at raising the corporate rate back to 35%, which is where it was before the Trump tax law, and as well as getting rid of some um, depreciation benefits that that kind of help corporations lower their tax rate. So that would be a, a huge increase uh, in, in the other direction. Mike Bloomberg is also talking about raising corporate tax rates, but um, going to about 28%, which is you know lower than it had been, but um, kind of a, a, a number that Obama had had uh, championed for many years. That would be only about a 1.2, 1.3 trillion dollar increase over a decade. Um, and that, that 28 number you see come up a lot. Um, that's also Joe Biden's been talking about that. Um, Amy Klobuchar is, has the lowest number in the field at 25%, uh, which is actually something a number that that Republicans had talked about um, when they were planning their tax reform a couple years ago. So, Laura, one of the big, big issues that really came to the forefront in 2016 was income inequality. How did these tax plans impact that, if at all? Um, so it, it really depends on, on kind of the specific provision and, and kind of how you look at them all in total as well. Uh, but this is an issue that you hear, um, you know, that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have talked about specifically. But across the board, all plans would uh, would would tax the, the rich a lot more. Income inequality and, and wealth inequality are sort of two different issues. Income inequality is a lot easier to tackle. You can do that by, you know, raising the capital gains rate, which nearly every candidate has proposed to do tax at the same as labor income, raising um, income rates on, on high earners. Um, doing things like a financial transaction tax, uh, which uh, Mike Bloomberg said yesterday he would support. And that's been something that uh, Sanders and Warren and Buttigieg and, and other candidates have been talking about for a while. 
Wealth inequality is a little bit trickier because that's on accumulated wealth, and our tax system, as it stands right now, doesn't tax uh, wealth. It just taxes income, essentially. So the wealth tax that Warren and Sanders have been talking about would do more to uh, alleviate wealth inequality, but there's a lot of questions about, one, if that is that politically viable, and two, is it even constitutional? Is anyone talking about rolling back some of the SALT uh, issue, salt tax deductions. Thank you. Well, I mean, I'm just wondering because there's been a, a theory this has disproportionately hit coastal states that have traditionally voted for Democratic candidates. However, the salt tax uh, deduction, the state and local tax deduction, really does tend to favor wealthier individuals. So it's not politically uh, necessarily going to support the Democratic case. Has there been any way in there uh, by the Democratic candidates? You have really just touched on sort of the, the hot button issue among kind of Democratic tax. Uh, thinkers right now. And so really, the the movement on SALT has been on Capitol Hill. Uh, Democrats on the campaign trail have not been talking of that, party, partly because it is a such a um, state-specific issue. Some of those states haven't even come up yet um, in the primaries, as well as it is, it's a politically difficult thing, because if you live in Florida or Iowa or Kansas or, or any of these states that, that have either no income taxes or, or very low rates, this is important to you, but if you're in Connecticut or New York or California, this is. So what Democrats on, on the Hill say is they believe that if a Democrat were to come into the White House, if they were to take back the Senate and have control, salt would be on the table, but that um, Democrats on the campaign trail are just really too scared to talk about it right now. So, Laura, what's the argument today, the contemporary argument for not raising taxes? The contemporary argument for not raising taxes? Yeah. Well, so so that's sort of kind of your the traditional um, trickle down kind of okay. um, idea that it, Republicans uh, you know have championed for a long, long time. Though I've been talking to some Republicans and they've been saying, uh, you know, and you see this with with Trump talking about a middle income tax cut, is that they're really concerned to talk about uh, lowering rates uh, for the for top earners and for corporations, you know, the Republicans used to talk for a long time about lowering that top rate, which now sits at 37% for individuals down to something in the 20s. That's really off the table. They're not they're not going there. You see kind of both the, the window of what both parties are, are kind of talking about has shifted to the left, uh, you know, of course, for the Democrats, but also some for the Republicans. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts there. Laura Davison, congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from the Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. And of course, uh, taxation is going to be one of the key themes I suspect that we're going to hear a lot about tonight at the debates. Well, there also is the bifurcation in the Democratic Party. You've got Bernie Sanders emerging very much as a front runner, consolidating some of the the support that previously had been split with Elizabeth Warren. And it's really going to be him very much in the forefront. And Michael Bloomberg coming into the first debate again, uh, founder and, and majority owner of Bloomberg LP. It's just going to be really interesting to see uh, where the, the focus is. Is it on what plans there are to further the U.S. economy and, and sort of, uh, you know, with health care, et cetera, or is it going to be on beating President Trump? And those are sort of some of the two yeah. narratives that have been dominant throughout the entire race. Boys, we think back to 2019 and even year to date here, equity markets very, very strong here. One area that's performed better, but still, I think, a little bit unloved is the financial sector. Dave Ellison, Portfolio Manager for Hennessy Funds, uh, joins us. He's based in Boston, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, so Dave, give us a sense of kind of just the financial stocks. I think back to some of the big players, the Goldman Sachs, the cities at JP Morgan's, uh, had a pretty good 2019 in terms of performance. How do you think, how's the, the group in general been performing financials? 
Well, I think there's a you're seeing a separation. You know, the people that are balance sheet centric, meaning that they have the bulk of their earnings from the balance sheet. They're they're not doing well. Uh, they're underperforming, and and I have a small cap financial fund that's actually down for the year, and that's primarily a balance sheet centric business. But the ones that are that are have more fee income, more more recurring fee income, like a Visa or a Mastercard, they continue to do well because that's what people want. They don't. You know, they don't want to own these balance sheets that are under threat from either credit or low rates. A lot of people look at the banks as sort of completely dependent on the yield curve. The flatter the yield curve in the United States goes, the gap between, in particular, two-year and 10-year Treasury yields, the less value people see in financials. Today, we're seeing the yield curve flatten yet again. Do you think that this is a fair assessment of the relationship between the yield curve and financials? I think so. I mean, I, I, disappointingly so. You know, when I started many, many years ago, Fed funds were at 18%, so it didn't matter what the yield curve was. You made plenty of money. But now the flatness of the yield curve and the lowness of rates relative to zero is a double whammy. And if you look at a big bank like J.P. Morgan, half of their profit's going to come from the balance sheet. If you look at a medium-sized to smaller bank, it can be 75 to 90% of their income comes from the balance sheet. So, if rates are going to go low and we're going to end up like Japan here in America, those those spreads are going to come in and that's going to attack half to 80 to 90 percent of their revenue. So if I told you that half of Apple's revenues were under pressure, where do you think the stock would be going? Right, right. All right. Let's we see. Let's take a look at the asset management side of the business. We had another deal announced yesterday. Franklin Templeton buying Leg Mason, uh, $50 a share. Um, is that just a reaction to the issue that has plagued the asset management business for almost a generation now, which is this pressure on fees? I, th- I think it's it's that, and it's also uh, these acquisitions allow them to reset uh, employee levels, compensation levels, layers of management levels. So you have a number of things that go on there. Um, but again, this is addition by subtraction. You're, you're putting two companies together that are losing AUM hoping that you can buy subtraction, meaning even though you're still shrinking, you can add value for the shareholders by, and again, resetting the corporate structure. That, that's what acquisitions allow you to do. Uh, and, and, and I think you're gonna see that more in this business. The backdrop of this merger was that active management, in particular, active, active equity fund management is a dying industry. That is your industry. What do you, what do you think when people say that? Well, I think there's, you know, it's an industry that is is under pressure because of what the market is doing. Um, and the market is giving you fairly decent performance metrics, which makes the index funds a safer way to play. So what, what the Fed is, is essentially done is taken a lot of the volatility out of capitalism. They did it two Decembers ago. They did it when, what's three or four months ago when the repo thing, they don't allow capitalism to come back in and therefore allow active management to add value. And so as long as the Fed is there, tamping down volatility and tamping down capitalism, then being in an index fund where you're just going along with the flow of money and the growth of money in the system, because remember there's money is going coming into the system every day. There's more dollars out there every day, if if the same amount goes into stocks, stocks will slowly go up. 
And if the Fed says we're not going to have any volatility, then you should just own an index fund. But once, once volatility returns, if it ever does, the active management will, will win. And the question is that the market doesn't, or at least investors don't believe that that's going to happen right now. What areas are you looking at right now that are most uh, you know, attractive to you right now? Again, we're 11 years into this finan- uh, economic cycle. The markets have been rallying. Uh, and so where do you see opportunity? Well, I think you, you know, the market is telling you that you should own five stocks. Right. Um, and that's... And, t- and financials aren't one of them, right? Aren't, well, well, right, they aren't. But, but certainly the, the Visa MasterCards of the world have done quite well. And that's why, you know, my large cap fund is, is, has performed well. Thank God I'm doing something right. <laughs> um, and I think that's, I think the winners are going to continue to be winners. And, you know, the, 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 unin- the companies that don't want to invest in their future, don't want to take chances, are going to continue to fall by the wayside. And I think you just have a lot of have and have nots out there. You have it in, in income and distribution. You have it in stock valuations. You have it in home prices. And it's just going to continue. Dave Ellison, thank you so much for being with us. You're Dave Ellison is a portfolio manager of the Hennessy Small Cap and Large Cap Financial Funds, joining us here in our interactive broker studios, normally based in Boston. A really interesting kind of conundrum. And I've heard this before, Paul, from people saying the Fed has killed off the volatility as well as sort of the natural price discovery right. that markets have been used to. And the question is, you know, what will occur if they allow it to, right. to go back? Or does this mean that they kind of can't? They can't. And if you look around the world, it's not just the Fed, the ECB and some other central bankers as well. So that seems to be the world we're in right now, post-financial crisis. The digital transformation of the industries from shopping Mm -hmm. to buying cars to buying homes to uh, finding a place to stay when you visit another city has been dramatic. It has overhauled the entire economy in many ways. And there is a question of how this is impacting the music industry where streaming is gaining such a big share of how people access music. Joining us now is Ben Mendoza. He is co-founder and chief executive officer of Beat Chain, uh, based in London, joining us here today in our interactive Broker Studios. Uh, and BJ kind of caters to this new era. But before we get into what you do, can we talk about how does a musician today make money? Okay. Well, thanks, Lisa. Thanks very much for having, having me here. Um, it's a very good question. The musicians today make most of their money um, if they're you know the, the normal musicians that are that are playing clubs and and and, and other events make most of their money from live performance uh, they will make some money from streaming but it will typically be possibly 15 or to 20 percent at max um, so they need to be able to sell tickets and sell their merchandise and and um, perform that's how they do it all right so how does beat chain fit into the economics of today's music industry okay um, the thing about musicians is then they're not necessarily the most um, technically savvy people. Okay. Okay. So what we've done at Beat Chain is we've tried to abstract away all the technicalities of boosting your brand using social media and, and other ways in which you can get in front of your target audience and made that very simple for musicians to use. So we put together a whole set of tools, a sort of platform, which includes understanding where your audience is seeing us literally a a, a dashboard with a with a map that says this is where 
Spotify listeners are listening to you. This is where your Facebook fans are and so on. So that you can understand who likes what and decide when you're going to play your next event, where to go to do that because you can see where your fans are congregated. Okay, so um, we, we provide that. We also provide a, a set of tools that allows these musicians to post out on the uh, social channels automatically against a schedule um, the right sort of content that's going to be engaging for their fans. Uh, many musicians have this idea that the first thing they should do is get some music up on Spotify. You know, and, and they'll get some streaming revenue from that. Well, actually, that's not the advice we would give them. We would say, before you do that, build up a fan base who wants to stream it. Right. You know, you've got to, you've got to actually engage those, that audience. So the tools we have are designed to do that. There's always been a complaint uh, in an era when CDs were a thing or, or vinyl uh, was the dominant form of, of getting your music, where the, the labels had such power over which music got distributed. Do they still have that power? Oh, sure. Absolutely, they do. But the, the opportunity there is, is there now with, the, with technology as it is today for artists to sidestep that. It used to be that if you wanted to promote yourself and build that audience I was talking about, then you needed the dollars that the big um, majors had behind you to do that. But has it really been uh, really changed? I mean, I'm just trying to, to figure out if you can get enough of a following, whether it's on Instagram or whether it's on Facebook, whether you see an increasing number of cases where people are able to sort of make their own fortune away from the labels in a way that's unique. Yes, absolutely. And we have case studies that show this. For the last two years, we've been working with a number of uh, bands in, across all genres uh, that have managed to build up literally hundreds of thousands of fans um, and that's enabled them to put on shows where they've hired the venue themselves they've sold the tickets themselves and they keep the majority of that that money this way when they were doing it through the traditional routes of having label services and promoters and managers then obviously those middlemen all take their share and less ends up in the musician's pocket so what's the economic model for your company, for, for BeatChain? How do you guys generate revenue? Okay, we generate revenue um, by having a three-tier model. So the, 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 the lowest tier of, of the BeatChain platform is actually free to use. And it gives a lot of very valuable information. But if you want to get into the, um, the real meat of, of, of promoting yourself and using the marketing um, tools that we we've supplied then we have a subscription model which is um for the sort of premium level is is 14.99 and then per month and and at the sort of superstar end is only 19.99 per month so it's still sort of the cost of a pizza a month right we okay. need to keep it affordable for musicians <laughs> so what's the draw i mean do you have a sense uh, that there would be interest from a major record label to acquire you or partner with you okay um i think there are lots of people looking at what we're doing in the industry i mean we have already fifty thousand people signed up to to beat chain and we've only just launched it. so there's a lot of interest in what we're doing and a lot we're getting a lot of user feedback and obviously it's not perfect yet and we're 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 carrying on improving it all the time 
But I think there is a whole bunch of services, especially when you look at the data science, when you look at the data that we generate, and, and this is something that the, the artists individually aren't necessarily interested in, but the industry is. You can see signatures in that data. You can, you can look at those artists that are breaking out in different areas, and that is very valuable, even to the major... Um, Wait, can you imagine a time when you know how Netflix kind of listens or, or, or monitors what people like and then takes pieces of that and kind of recreates a show based around that? Are you saying that that's kind of... That's basically what we're doing in the background. I mean, there's, there, there's a lot of... Um, interesting technology getting towards machine learning and 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 even some ai although that that, that tends to be banded around fa fairly freely yeah. these days um when you when you bring those different data sets together you can infer a lot of information and you can make actionable insight out of that so um yes definitely we are seeing that um, we can help artists by saying look this is what's working for other acts like you in your in your genre try doing this you know post here have this type of content and when they do that they see a big uplift in the in the responses um, that they get Ben Mendoza, thanks for joining us. Really fascinating story. You talk about industry, like you mentioned earlier, at least it's been disrupted. Boy, so the music industry has been disrupted with technology. Well, and it's so interesting to think about how you can get such real-time feedback about yeah. what's popular and what's not and how you can sort of tailor the music to yeah. that. And that's sort of what we're seeing out of Netflix, the way that they try to craft shows around the likes yep. or dislikes of, of the viewers. Yeah, I could see how this would be for the independent uh, artist would be who's not signed up to a big label. This would be a hugely value-added story. Ben Mendoza, co-founder and chief executive officer of B-Chain, uh, based in London, but uh, we're fortunate that he's joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Uh, so very interesting on the music business. We've seen uh, you know, more and more the artists uh, given kind of how the music industry has evolved has made most of their money today uh, by touring and uh, it's less so from uh, the recorded contracts that they have with their labels. So uh, interesting to see how Beat Chain fits in here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.